out there, everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode 47 of the Mark Geis Show. So I know I had promised in my prior episode that I would discuss Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, and I ended up not getting that out as quickly as I'd like to, and there's been quite a bit of news in the in the past week or whatever it's been since I put out the prior episode, I think a little less than a week. So I want to talk about those things first. I think that that Democracy in America episode can wait until there's a slower news day or slower news week. And what I really want to discuss in this episode is Donald Trump's decision to to bomb Syria and everything involved in that decision, getting embroiled in another Middle Eastern conflict. And also I want to discuss what everybody's discussing today and yesterday, today being April 11th. Everybody's discussing this United passenger being forcibly removed from a plane. And more information's come out on that in the last day. You saw United's stock fluctuate quite a bit today during during trading, and they regained most of what they lost from their high yesterday on the 10th. So United hasn't been hurt too badly in terms of market cap. It ended up being somewhere around $200 million from where it closed on the 10th to where it closed on the 11th. But I think the the PR issue is still there. I'm going to talk about why I think this shows how a, f- a free market works. And I will justify what I'm saying there. So don't be all up in arms right away because I, I think that what happened to this passenger is, is heinous and it's something that we should criticize. But the beauty of the free market is that now we can punish United. We can choose to fly elsewhere. And of course, there are instances where United's the, the only choice that you have. You may not have a have another option, but as opposed to, I saw somebody trying to make the comparison between United and the IRS or the DMV. If you get poor customer service from one of those agencies, one of those organizations, you can't go elsewhere. So there, there's no way to really punish those groups. And of course, bad behavior is going to continue to proliferate. So those are going to be the two big things I talk about. I feel like that's probably going to take me over a half hour today. So I probably won't have time to get into the democracy in America, uh, things that I talked about, talking about quotes and, and how oppression a lot of what de Tocqueville talked about in his book back in the 1830s. So first, first we'll discuss the decision to bomb Syria. And I have been very critical of of the United States getting involved in Middle Eastern conflicts. Anybody that's listened to this show consistently knows that that's the case. And this Syrian conflict has been brewing for a while. And the tough thing about this, and the tough thing about all these Middle Eastern conflicts, is there isn't a good side to take. The issue is with the United States taking sides at all. The issue is, okay, say you get Assad out of there, and I agree that Assad is a bad guy. Just like Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. And of course, if I could choose a quality leader to be installed there and I knew that everything would go smoothly, I would like to do that. But that's not how the world works. You remove Assad and now you have a vacuum of power just like happened in Iraq and it becomes a haven of terrorist activity. Assad's a bad dude, but in the political culture in a lot of those countries, I think bad dudes sometimes are the only ones that can stay in power. So you've got to look at what the alternatives are. And you have basically the entire meaty middle of the uh, of the American political class or of American politics saying, 
we need to go after Syria, that we need to oust Assad, we need to be involved in Syria. And I think if you just look at what's happened in in my lifetime, so most of the people listening to the show, I'm assuming probably are at least in their late teens. And so you remember the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, you, you remember those wars at the very least. But these issues go back even further than that. Every time we've meddled in the Middle East, it has not gone well. So I don't know why we keep trying to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. But whenever you have both the moderate Democrats, so I'm talking about the Chuck Schumers, uh, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Hillary Clinton's, whenever you have them in favor of an issue, and then you have the Lindsey Graham's and the John McCain's, and really the you could call them, I guess, the moderate Republicans, really the neocon Republicans or somehow the, the moderate Republicans. But whenever they agree on something, you know that it is a horrible decision. And all of these people agree agree on this. And anybody that's calling into question whether or not Assad was the one that used chemical weapons in the first place, which I think there are a lot of doubts. I have a lot of doubts myself. And I'll, I'll read a couple quotes here. I also want to play a clip from, from Tulsi Gabbard, who's one of the few people on the left who's questioning if Assad actually used chemical weapons or not. Because it doesn't make any sense. Where he was, he was, he was in a strong position. He had beat back his enemies. And why would he choose to use chemical weapons on a, on a fairly small number of civilians? Why would he choose to do that when he was in a good position? and potentially draw the ire of the international community. It just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And Gabbard's one of the few people on the left speaking out against that. A lot of people are speaking out saying Trump should have gotten congressional authorization. Rand Paul has said the same thing. Thomas Massey's been one of the few people on the right that I've seen also, similar similarly to Gabbard, question whether or not Assad actually was guilty of using chemical weapons in this instance. So... You do have a lot of people questioning Trump being able to make this decision basically unilaterally, which I agree is an issue. I agree it's an issue that since World War II, we've not gotten a formal declaration of war for any conflict that we've been in. There's no formal declaration of war in Korea, in Vietnam, you know, you know, closer to closer to current times in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and then now in Syria, of course. So. Yes, it's an issue. I would like to see Congress authorize the use of military force. But I think Congress would have authorized military force in this case. So I think the deeper issue here, the deeper issue beyond getting congressional approval is why are we, you know, why is it so accepted that we're involved in these conflicts in the first place? We need to question the basic premise that it's the United States' responsibility to be involved in any of these conflicts when what happens in Syria has no bearing on on my life, on the life of other Americans, unless we get involved in that war, unless we have people over there. That's the only way that our interests are really threatened at all by what's going on in Syria. So I think that's the bigger issue. People, people are, are talking poorly about Trump because he didn't get congressional approval, and I agree with that, but that's the easy position to take. That's the position that, that most people are taking. You know, that's the position that I, I think Bernie Sanders has come out and said, but he has also said that he thinks that Assad should be ousted. 
that we should figure out a way with the international community to oust Assad, to go in and intervene in a sovereign country and get rid of somebody and create a vacuum of power, which has been the pattern time and time again in the Middle East. And that's, that's, that's the most controversial opinion that's accepted. So I'm going to play that Tulsi Gabbard clip that I talked about. She was on Tucker Carlson. I thought they had a good conversation. Uh, so I'm going to play that, and then I'm going to talk about the response that she's gotten from the Democratic establishment. We, as the American people, should be concerned when any president of the United States launches an illegal and unconstitutional military strike against a foreign government. Uh, this is something that Congress has not authorized, and it's an escalation of a counterproductive regime change war in Syria that our country's been waging for years. First, for many years, through the CIA covertly, and now overtly through President Trump's reckless military strike last night. Uh, as you know well, Tucker, this is a war that has cost hundreds of thousands of Syrian lives. It has caused millions of Syrian refugees to flee their home. And it has strengthened these terrorist groups operating on the ground in Syria, like al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, ISIS, and others, whose sole goal is to overthrow the Syrian government, to, to take over and, and take ownership right. over Syria. So there you can hear her really criticizing the regime change aspects of this war. You can't hear it necessarily in that clip, her questioning whether or not the chemical attacks were carried out by Assad. She does mention it later in that interview with Tucker, but I took another interview that she did with Wolf Blitzer where I think she expanded on that point a little bit more, so I think it hammers home the point a little bit more. So I'm going to play that next and then come back and talk about all of it in, it in its entirety. Here's the issue, Wolf, is what I believe, what you believe or others believe is irrelevant. What matters here is the evidence and the facts. Uh, if President Assad is found to be responsible after an independent investigation for these horrific chemical weapons attacks, I'll be the first one to denounce him to call him a war criminal and to call for his prosecution, the International Criminal Court, make sure that those consequences are there. But the key is now with President Trump's reckless uh, military strikes last night, uh, it flew directly in the face of the action that the UN was working on at that time to launch an independent investigation, to find out exactly what the facts are, who was involved and who was responsible, so that the appropriate uh, consequences could be levied. And I think she is completely right on this point. Maybe there is evidence that it was Assad. Maybe it is out there, but the Pentagon has not does not have a track record that should lead the American people to believe when it says, oh yeah, we have the evidence that such and such happened. They've misled us before. They've misled us into spending trillions of dollars on useless wars that have that have cost hundreds, if not thousands of lives. Uh, so the Pentagon has done this time and time again. So you can't just believe the Pentagon or the White House when they say, oh yes, this is exactly what happened. Until we see the evidence, this should be considered up in the air. And I'm going to discuss a little bit of evidence out there that, that leads you to believe that either the chemical attack didn't happen or that the chemical attack was not carried out by Assad. And of course, this is this is evidence kind of gathered around the periphery of, of what's going on. There hasn't been a full investigation with a lot of resources put toward this. But I think these things at least should lead a person to believe that this needs to be investigated further. So first of all, there was a there was a journalist, a prominent anti-Assad journalist 
over in the Middle East who um, basically tweeted out that, that a chemical attack was going to happen. So how could foreknowledge have possibly happened with for an anti-Assad journalist to know that these chemical attacks were coming? That raises some questions. Next, there are pictures from the scene of the crime where people are handling victims, and these are the Syrian white helmets who are who tend to be affiliated with the United States, have been affiliated with the United States, and they're handling sarin gas victims with their bare hands. And sarin gas is toxic. You would not be handling victims with your bare hands. So this raises questions as to was sarin gas the chemical used? You know, was there truly the the chemical attack that they're that they're trying to say happened here? Of course, I don't know, but these are all raising questions. Also, I think this is some of the biggest evidence. One of the things that people were saying was, well, only the Assad regime over there has chemical weapons. Well, that's not the case. Over the past several years, The Guardian reported, for example, that ISIS had captured a massive former Iraqi chemical weapons facility northwest of Baghdad. And uh, they, they got over 2,500 chemical rockets filled with sarin gas in that seizure. Uh, there's also been some speculation that ISIS and other rebel groups have been able to access materials for chemical weapons stored by Gaddafi in Libya. And the New York Times in November 2016 ha- reported that ISIS has used chemical arms at least 52 times in Syria and Iraq. So it's been used by these rebel groups and they've been reported to seize them from other regimes, not necessarily the Syrian regime, but other people have chemical weapons in Syria. It's not just the Syrian government. And if you want to take, if you're one of these people that takes the mainstream media at face value, the mainstream media reported back in 2014 that the Syrian government had completed the removal of all its chemical weapons from the country per an agreement they'd reached with the United States. So if you want to believe what the Wall Street Journal reported, then the Syrian government wouldn't have any chemical weapons unless they would have had to acquire them since then. So a lot of holes in this this whole this whole idea that only the Syrian government could possibly have the means to carry out this kind of attack because these rebel groups have carried out attacks before using chemical weapons and they've been known to possess chemical weapons. So I think that's probably the biggest uh, hole in the story for me reading through it, reading through the evidence here. Um, and then just looking at the position that Assad was in. It did not make sense for him to use sarin gas to attack civilians when he was in a position of strength. Maybe that would have been some sort of desperation move. I don't know what he really would have been trying to accomplish there. But he had he was in a good position. Why would you draw the ire of the international community if you were in a good position? It just makes absolutely no sense at all. So it smells funny. And then when you look deeper into some of this evidence, you start to see that there's some evidence there that this was not carried out by Assad and the Syrian government. So I don't know what's ultimately going to happen if the United States is going to be embroiled in this conflict over the long term, or if Trump is just trying to try to make himself look big on the world stage and show you can't screw around with us. So we make this one big time strike kind of back away and then it's over. I don't think that that's the case. I think that we are going to be embroiled in this conflict and that we are here to stay. 
I think when you look at when you look at how the mainstream networks and you look at the people I talked about before, like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, and then Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Max Boot, a lot of these other ty- neocon types, Bill Kristol, all these people who came out now and said, now Trump is our president. So apparently you have to carry out an act of war against a sovereign nation in order to be considered presidential to most of the meaty middle of the American political spectrum. It's ridiculous. So now who do you have that's anti-war? You have this weird coalition now of, of actual progressives. I would say, I would say Tulsi Gabbard represents that. And I think you haven't seen, you've seen Bernie Sanders sell out. I don't think you can call him really the representative of progressive America anymore. But I think somebody like Tulsi Gabbard still does represent a large portion of the left. And that's a portion of the left that's not just consumed with Trump hatred and actually has some principles. Of course, I disagree with a lot of their principles. One of the things I don't disagree with them on is foreign policy. But you have those progressives, and I think, like I said, Gabbard's a good representative of that. And then you have libertarians, and you have you have somebody like Thomas Massey in D.C., representing that movement, you know, Ron Paul, you could, you can name a lot of different people that have been consistently dovish on foreign policy, have not wanted to intervene in, in foreign countries affairs. And then now you have this, this new group, which I think has gotten a lot larger in recent years. And these are the people that I think carried Donald Trump to victory. It's a lot of younger people, a lot of people in my age demographic that jumped on the Trump train because they embraced I think primarily the comments that he made about being involved in these long wars. They saw this is something that major presidential candidates have not really said in a very long time, in in their lifetimes at least. You know, we, that we should question the foreign policy mistakes that have been made under under these previous regimes, under the Obama regime, under the Bush regi- regime, under the Clinton regime. And I think a lot of people got behind that. Somebody like uh, like Paul Joseph Watson from Infowars, he came out and tweeted that he's off the Trump train right when this happened. And Ann Coulter came out, and I, I know she's not in that in that same age group. Paul Joseph Watson is younger, but Ann Coulter had had been outspoken that these Middle Eastern wars are useless. And I don't agree with Ann Coulter on a whole lot of things, but I think she was she was huge. In terms of backing Trump, she was one of the first people to really give Trump a chance, and she was laughed at for it. And I think she's right on this as well, but she's become dovish on adventurous foreign policy. And you have a lot of other people in that group that I think was a core of Trump's demographic. The people at the core of Trump's victory do not agree with what he's doing here. And I was happy to see that. I was happy to not see people be just consumed in this cult of personality with Donald Trump at the helm. And that's what happens. I think that's what happened with the left under Barack Obama. Nobody was willing to question what he was doing overseas with all these drone strikes and with him not keeping any of his campaign promises. And Donald Trump has, you know, has, has largely abandoned a lot of what he said he was going to do. I've been very critical of him on Obamacare and how he ran on repealing Obamacare and has not been able to deliver that. And now he's completely turned 180 on what he talked, what he said about foreign policy, and that's why some libertarians kind of 
lukewarmly supported him. And I said myself that I thought he was the lesser of two evils over Hillary Clinton. I still think that's probably the case. Uh, but what I had said about Trump was there's a tiny sliver of hope that maybe he'll be good, but chances are he'll be very bad and maybe make enough people wake up to to realize that the whole the whole thing is a sham. You know that that the whole the office of the presidency has been made so powerful so beyond what the founding fathers had in mind that we need to really wake up and and think is is it right to vest this much power in one person and is it right to vest this much power in Washington DC and I thought Trump would be if he was bad which there's a 95 plus percent chance that he was going to be bad that maybe he would be ridiculous enough to get people to wake up to that fact so I think it looks like we're going down that path but it was sickening that night when these when these airstrikes first happened watching probably the most positive night of news coverage for Donald Trump in his entire presidency and CNN was in on it MSNBC even to a point was was in on it you know maybe it wasn't glowingly positive but compared to the normal Trump coverage it was far more positive than usual so apparently what you have to do is you have to go to war to get the support of mainstream media. And I've tried to draw the line in prior episodes on, on this podcast between an expansive military, which is used to carry out this adventurous foreign policy, and big government and loss of freedoms at home. They're all intertwined. You can't have big government abroad without having big government at home. They come hand in hand. And I think you have to choose one or the other. And I think the people in my age group, the people the people who are, say, 20 to 30 right now, you call them the millennials, whatever you want to call that, that age group, or you could say 25 to 34, sometimes that's a common demographic, but people that age have, have grown up with this country pretty much perpetually at war and have seen it's not working. We are further in debt. People are, people's standards of living are not improving. You're seeing people's freedoms be continually taken away. And all of these things, all of these things are negatives. And of course, I think a lot of us think certain solutions are better than others. You know, we don't all have the same, we all, we all have the same idea that something's wrong, but we don't all agree on what to do to solve it. Of course, my idea of a solution is going to be very different from a progressive's idea of a solution. But I think we're all realizing that what's happening now, the status quo, is not sustainable and that all it's doing is harming Americans. So if we get involved in another Middle Eastern war, which it looks like we're on the path to do, all we're doing is compounding those issues. All we're doing is, is spending another $500 billion or a trillion dollars on a war, going deeper into debt, having another excuse to take further freedoms away from, from Americans. So that's where I stand right now. I do think I agree with everybody saying that Trump should get congressional approval, but I think he would have gotten congressional approval if he had gone to Congress. And I think the bigger issue is we should be que- we should be questioning this overarching notion that the United States should be involved in any of these other countries, should be involved in the Middle East at all. Because I think all it's brought us is trouble time and time again. So I knew I was going to probably talk more about Syria than I was going to talk about the United incident. I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to say about Syria. Actually, I did want to say 
before I go back to United, what Howard Dean said about Tulsi Gabbard. So first, in response to um, in response to what I just played, the the Wolf Blitzer Tulsi Gabbard interview, that second clip of Gabbard that I played, Neera Tandon, who was a Hillary Clinton advisor, she she tweeted out, "People of Hawaii's second district, was it not enough for you that your rep met with a murderous dictator? Will this move you?" And she called for the people of the second district of Hawaii to vote Gabbard out, to go to the polls and get her out. Because first she had the audacity to actually go to Syria and try to figure out what's happening herself. How dare she, right? How dare she go and try to figure out something for herself and not believe what her masters are telling her are the quote-unquote facts. So Howard Dean then quoted the near attendant, I believe I'm saying that right, uh, tweet and said, this is a disgrace. Uh, I need to f- this is a disgrace. Gabbard should not be in Congress. So Howard Dean, who ran for the pre- the presidency, the, the Democratic nomination in 2004, ended up losing out to John Kerry after his infamous yell, uh, and somehow that destroyed him. His his crazy yell destroyed him. But this is how people are reacting to to someone like Gabbard questioning what the mainstream is saying and it is incredible how everybody just falls in line behind what the what they think the accepted truth is and are not willing to listen to anything else and if you listen to what Gabbard said in that interview she said all I want to see is the evidence the American people deserve the evidence before we spend the money on another costly war before people send their children off to die and I think that's really the the fundamental issue here is that the people making these proclamations, these politicians, the vast majority of them do not have children in the military. The vast majority of them were never in the military themselves. And they didn't grow up in communities where a lot of their peers went into the military. And that's different than most American people. Most American people grew up in communities where there was a substantial portion of people that they grew up with that went into the military. They probably know, or oftentimes they know somebody who died in combat or who came back injured in combat. And most of these so most of these politicians don't have that same experience and they don't feel the pain of war firsthand. They maybe feel it with slightly higher taxes. Uh, and that hurts too, of course, but it's not any it does not compare to the human costs of war. And so I think they're a step removed from that. These are not the people that are going to be going off and fighting these regime change wars. And until until they're able to realize that or until until we get these people out of office, out of public life, and make it clear that this is not an acceptable position to take, that the American people are not going to accept warmongering, then we're going to continue to hear it. But that was what I wanted to throw in. I almost forgot to, to say it. So to the United flight, the, the United passenger that was kicked off, he was a former doctor. He had had his medical license revoked. I believe from from what I've read, but all of that really doesn't mean anything. That that came out today. All the details about how he had, he had traded prescription drugs for gay sex, and he had uh, that he was a, he was a felon, and that he had his medical license revoked. All of those things, but it doesn't really matter. I think, yeah, it's interesting to read to see the background of this guy, but. I think we all have questionable things in our background, not questionable to that extent, of course, but it's interesting how the goalposts were attempted to be moved. 
But what I, what I think we should take away from this story is that when a company like United acts in an irresponsible manner, and I think this was an irresponsible manner, the guy sat down in his seat. He did not voluntarily say that he was he was willing to leave. Of course, I don't know the I don't know the truth of the story that he had patience to reach, but a corporation should not be able to use the police, the taxpayer-funded police, to carry out its bidding for it, to go and beat a guy up and get him off their plane. So I think that's one issue. That's been hit plenty hard enough, though. I don't, I don't think I need to expand on that any further because I don't think I'm bringing anything unique by analyzing that any further. I think in the aftermath of what happened, so if you look at what happened to United's market cap and from their high point on the 10th to their low point on the 11th. So the 10th was when it happened. That was yesterday, the 11th today. So from the high point to the low point, their market cap declined by over a billion dollars. Now from the close of the 10th to the close of the 11th, they were down, it was about about $200 million. I'm I'm estimating roughly there. I didn't write down the exact number, but I'd gone and look at the, looked at the charts and uh, figured out what that amount was based on the 314 million shares I believe they had outstanding. And the high point on the 10th was about $72. I think it was $71.99. And then the low point was below $68.50. I think I believe it was like $68.36 or something like that on the 11th. And then it ended up closing back up almost to 71. It was over 70.50, I believe. Um, I'm I'm reciting that from memory from earlier earlier in the day, so those numbers may be slightly off, but the gist of it is still there. But this is hitting the executives where it hurts. A big part of executive compensation is stock options, and if this has any sort of sustainable negative impact on the United stock, which it may, I don't know if it will or not. I don't know really if if people are necessarily going to remember this six months down the line if people. Maybe in the next few months, people will look at United and say, I'm, I'm out booking that that airline, even if it's the lowest fare. But I think over time, people are probably going to forget about it. But when a company screws up, it hurts them. It hits them. And if enough people are willing to boycott a, a particular product, or not even boycott necessarily, but are willing to maybe pay a little extra to avoid using that product, it hurts the exact people who are in position-making power at that business. So I think that's what we need to take away here. This is not a, a failure of capitalism by any means, but I think it's one of the best aspects of capitalism that this company is going to be punished. And if enough people do make that decision, then United could be in financial trouble. The future of United Airlines could be in jeopardy. I don't think it will be. I think, like I said, people are going to forget about it after a few months and, Maybe there'll be some hardcore boycotts, but most of the time when you're flying from one place to another, you don't have a huge bevy of options. And part of that is that the airline industry is not very profitable and, and there are huge costs of entry. There are, there are high barriers to entry because of how much it costs to buy planes and to be able to, to operate, that it's hard for, for new entrants to just come in and compete right away. So those two things combined lead you to not having a ton of comp- competition in the airline industry, but there is a lot more competition than there was 30, 40 years ago prior to deregulation of the airline industry. And I think 
deregulation in the airline industry has been a, a success, a, a huge success. The areas where you find that you have the, the most negative experiences are in the areas where government has control. And you look at the TSA. I don't know if I've ever talked about the TSA on this podcast, but that should not be a government function, let alone a federal government function. But the TSA, that's where if you ask people that travel most of the time, most of them would say the TSA is their least favorite part of the entire airline experience and that they've had the most negative experiences with the TSA because of, you know, they have these, these very black and white rules and, and they will, you know, execute them to the letter. They have no incentive to be friendly to you because you have no option to go elsewhere. And the airlines, like I said, there's not a ton of competition, but there still is, there still is competition. And if, if you don't treat people well, they will go to your competitor. Uh, so I think we should not be talking about this as being a failure of, of capitalism by any means, which I've seen some people trying to trying to spin this into. Another thing that deserves mention that I saw is that the limit for the amount of voucher for, for the voucher amount that airlines can give out is $1,350. Why in the world is there a limit on, on what these airlines can offer its customers to be bumped? And the story I saw said that they offered up to $1,000 in this case for people to be bumped. And three people came forward, but they couldn't get a fourth. That's how they ended up forcing this, uh, this doctor, Dr. Dow, off the plane. Why is there a limit? Why is the government imposing a limit on what these airlines can offer people to be bumped? If nobody, What if nobody was willing to do it at $1,350? Then the airline, I guess, is, is going to forcibly remove somebody or have somebody involuntarily bumped and just give them that amount of money, even though they weren't willing to do it in the first place. So one of the things that should come out of this is those limits should be, should be gone. We should not accept those limits. Another thing I've seen people trying to say is that overbooking of flights should not be allowed. Now, I don't, I don't agree with that position whatsoever. Overbooking has to be allowed. And if customers value it enough, and maybe they're willing to pay a little premium for it, that their flights will never be overbooked, then an airline will do it. If there's a profit motive there, if there's more money to be made by guaranteeing your customers no flight will ever be overbooked, you will never ha- you will never be bumped from a flight on our airline, an airline will do it. There's a reason why none of them do it, though, because it's more profitable to do it that way, and they'd much rather, in those instances where more people show up than they've booked, or more people show up than there are seats, and they are, you know, they are over capacity for that flight, then they've got to pay what the market will bear until enough people come forward they continue to up that voucher amount and eventually you will get people to come forward. And maybe you've got to up it to $1,500 or, or $2,000 or something, but people will eventually come forward. Not every single person on a plane is on a tight schedule to get to where they're to, to get to where they need to go. So the, to solve this, eliminating or making overbooking illegal by law is not a solution to this problem whatsoever. If enough people demand that that airlines don't overbook, then airlines will start to do that. Or maybe we'll start to float trial balloons and see if enough people are interested in it. But I don't want to see anything like that imposed by law that overbooking should not be allowed. 
I used to work in the hotel industry and we used to do that too. We used to overbook by a little bit and what you'd have to do if you saw that probably now more people were going to come than you had rooms, you had to start working the phones, you had to contact people and try to see if you could get them a room in a nearby hotel. And I think ultimately you came out ahead because if you weren't doing that overbooking, you would almost never have a fully sold out hotel. So in those instances where maybe you did have one or two extra people show up, one or two more people than you had rooms, you could pay double the room rate and go get them in somewhere else. And typically, you know, you'd have a lucrative enough package that that somebody was willing to do it, that somebody was willing to do it. And that's what typically happens with airlines. Sometimes you'd have to really up the ante and maybe the hotel would be out 800 bucks for that night. But I still think the hotel came out ahead over the long run. And I still think airlines continuing to overbook, but getting rid of this arbitrary $1,350 limit, the airlines still would come out ahead, even if maybe they have to shell out $2,000 every once in a while. If there's just really a flight where people do not want to leave, but you can find a way to work your, to work out your schedule. Somebody is able to, if you've got $2,000 sitting there in front of them. Uh, so I think that's the, that's the position I have. I have there. I, I don't think the solution is to make overbooking illegal. I, I think it's a ridiculous solution. It's attacking it's attacking a symptom, not the root of the actual problem. I think what we should be criticizing most, though I, I've seen a lot of people criticize this, so that's why I didn't focus on it and what I'm talking about here, that you should not have law enforcement, you should not have the police be able to come into a corporation's domain, you know, into an airline and use violence against a person to to come in and forcibly remove somebody who's standing there peacefully. Uh, so we'll see what comes out of this. It's already kind of died down a bit. The, the video is disturbing to watch if you've not watched it. I didn't play the audio or anything because I figured most people have probably already seen it, and I don't think playing the audio adds too much. But it was a big piece of news, so I figured I should probably comment on it. So... I think I'm going to cut it off here. I'm getting up closer about that 40 minute mark, which is where I tend to try to be. So I will save the democracy in America talk for my next episode. Maybe I'll be able to do that tomorrow. Maybe, maybe eh, Thursday. I think I have my other podcast going on, but by the end of this week, I want to have that out. That's a really fun episode. I'm looking forward to doing. So thank you so much for listening. If you haven't gone out, please go and subscribe by iTunes or whatever podcast aggregating app or software that you use. I'd really appreciate it. It's been awesome seeing those subscriber numbers continue to go up and to know where people are listening from, what platforms are listening from. So thank you for all your support and I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great week. 